I'm Heather. After many wasted years trying outdated approaches to my daughter's addiction that felt wrong to me, harmed our relationship, and didn't help my daughter, I finally found an effective evidence-based approach that repaired my relationship with her, helped me create my own peace of mind, and made me an ally in my daughter's recovery. I teach you a loving and compassionate approach to help you encourage change and create connection. Addiction impacts the entire family system. Family recovery is the answer. Today's guest, Jill, is the host of Sober Powered, a top 50 mental health podcast, and the founder of Sober Powered Media, a podcast network with five other top mental health podcasts. She started her career teaching math and science and obtained a master's degree in biology to transition to working in research. Getting Sober in 2019 inspired her to start her podcast, Sober Powered. After two years of consistent hard work, she recently left her career as a biochemist to start the Sober Powered Media Podcast Network. Jill was my first podcast guest for episode number nine. We talked about some of the science behind substance use. This time, I had her come on to share about her Living a Sober-Powered Life support group. I find myself telling a lot of parents about her group lately, so I thought I'd have her come on so that you can hear about it directly from her, because we all need a support team. As parents, we need to be around other parents who understand what we're going through. Going down this road alone is hard and lonely. We are stronger together, and that's why we feel that instant connection with another parent who understands us. Our kids need that same support and connection from somebody who understands their substance use. Hi, Jill. So welcome back to the podcast. It's nice to have you on for a second time as a repeat guest. Yeah, thanks for inviting me again. So I want to start by just giving a little bit of your backstory, like why you started the Sober Powered Podcast, and then now even Sober Powered Media. Yeah, so I originally started Sober Powered about two and a half years ago, because I just wanted to help people understand like why this happened to them and like why we can't control our drinking. That was my main point to help people alleviate some of the shame around the stigma. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years in, I had built up my audience enough to start considering going full time. And I got the opportunity to meet some very important people in the podcasting industry. And they were the ones that encouraged me to start Sober Powered Media and my podcast network. So I met someone from Spotify and then I met someone from an advertising agency and they encouraged me to start a network and ask some other popular shows. And I figured, why not? First, I didn't think that I would be able to be successful. So I kind of procrastinated it for a few months and then they were insistent. So I decided to give it a shot and it's been just about six months. That's great. And your podcast has grown really fast, been super popular. It's funny, like now when I recommend it to parents, a lot of times I already know about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, so that's what, cool. Yeah, it is. Like, cause you're, where does your podcast rank on the charts? The sober powered? I'm usually like top 50 ish. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing. Thank like, you. I know how hard it is to, and you started with no audience, right? Yeah. I didn't even want it because the nature of my podcast, I didn't even want to share it with my friends and family because I wasn't really like out telling people about my sobriety. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to hide it from everyone who knew me. So I really started at absolute zero. I made a brand new Instagram account and started with zero. Yeah, I did the same thing and that is not easy. So I've been like really impressed to watch your podcast grow. I think it's, and how consistent you are. And I was like, she's, if I could be that consistent, it would be amazing. <laughs> Cause you were working full time initially on top of doing the podcast, which takes so much time. Yeah, it was two full-time jobs. I was actually talking to my husband about this last night and I told him, that I am the cockroach of sobriety, that you just cannot get rid of me, no matter what you do. I will never go away. And he's That's like, that where did tenacity. you? Yeah, right. It's not like the best analogy, but I liked it when I thought of it. Yeah, that's awesome. I always would tell my daughter, like, when you get everything moving in a positive direction, right? And focused on something else. I know that you're going to be super successful. And like you putting all of your focus into your podcast is really what made it so successful. Yeah, I had a lot of time and I had a lot of excitability because I wasn't spending 40 plus hours a week thinking about alcohol or recovering from alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. So. Before we start talking about your group, I wanted to just talk about ads because you sent this email out and it was very enlightening to me because I never really thought about it before. So there's a lot of podcasts. I don't have ads on mine, but there's a lot of podcasts that do have ads on them and I have a tendency to skip through them. And you were talking about how that works and how that's how creators like you, you did it for free. Like, so people are getting to listen to this really valuable information for free. And you were doing it like that for a long time with all this hard work. And then you started putting ads on your podcast. So can you explain a little bit about how that works? Yeah, people usually get really cranky about ads and they think that we're like selling out or whatever. I've had a couple listeners to the other podcasts in my network have complained about the ads. And what people don't understand is we're not just spontaneously getting paid for making free content. I think everyone just assumes creators have a bunch of money and a team and all these things. And most of us do not have that. I actually read a study yesterday on creators and 21% make a livable income of 50,000. Wow. So that means almost 80% are making an amount of money that like they can't even survive on without another job. So people think all of this payment is just coming from somewhere and ads are such a good way to get paid because it keeps the content free for everybody. You mm -hmm. can still enjoy free content there's just a little ad in front of it for a product I think you might like. It's not something random or horrible. Mm -hmm. 
And when people skip the ads, because my network is so sophisticated, it detects that and it doesn't count. So advertisers pay for a certain number of impressions. So they might pay for up to 50,000 impressions or something like that. And it actually will track throughout the month how many people listen to the ad. And then that's what we get paid on. So if 50% of our listeners skip, we're not hitting that 50,000 impressions and we get a lot less money. So I think ads, wherever it is, on a podcast, on a YouTube channel, if someone has a sponsored post on Instagram or Facebook, it's just a way that you can say thank you to a creator for all of their free content and all their hard work. And you don't have to do anything but listen to it or look at it. Yeah. And how long does it take you to do a podcast episode from start to finish from the concept of the idea to it being out where somebody can listen to it? Yeah, it's about probably five hours per 15 minute episode. Yeah, it is so (laughs) time and labor intensive to put out like a high quality podcast episode. And it, it takes me a long time too. So I think about that differently now, especially even like with YouTube videos, I will, I make sure I watch at least one ad. If they're shorter ones, then I'll watch two. But I'm like, this is how I'm paying this person for this valuable information that they're giving me. Yeah, exactly. My husband gets annoyed with me because I'm watching so many ads now. (laughs) He's like, you don't have to watch them all. I'm like, yes, I do. It matters. And when they have like a baked in ad on YouTube or something, Mm -hmm. I sit there and I just play on my phone for a second and I let the ad play and that's me supporting them. And you can just check in on your phone or like do something else and then come back to the video after a minute when it's over. Yeah, I do the same thing. So thanks for sharing about that because I think it's important to understand why those ads are in there. And this is really how you are making your living now because this is your full-time job. Yeah. So ads make up probably like three-fifths of my income. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty significant amount. So if people all of a sudden stop listening to my ads, it would be very stressful for me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So just listen to the ads. So... I found myself recently like telling all of my clients about your group that you started because so many parents end up feeling like their kids only support system or it's a lot of pressure on both sides, right? Like their kid feels like they hate having to go to their parent all the time. And then the parent hates like being the only support system. It's so much pressure. And so you know, I've been trying to give other ideas. I think about it like it's like two tables sharing one leg. I mean, it's totally unstable. We need a support team. I felt completely alone with my daughter, you know, trying to support her as a single mom. And somebody just said to me one time, like, you need to think about building a support team, like put everybody in your phone that's on your support team. And just like that one little thing made me feel so much less alone. So I was thinking about like, I'm like, oh, I've got to get a hold of Jill and research her group so that I can explain it better. And I was like, I'm just going to have her on the podcast. So she's going to be the best person to explain it. So do you want to give us a little background on your group? Yeah. So it's a private community. Mm -hmm. So it kind of looks like 
a bunch of mini Facebook groups where there's little areas for each topic, or there's a woman's only area, we have a men's only area, we have things like that. And you can post, we have chat rooms, and we have meetings one to two times a week, and then meetings on all of the like major holidays like Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then there's some other like bonus content, but the main part is community and meetings. And I think that we associate getting support with like weakness or not being strong enough and really support it helps it makes you feel like you matter and you're cared about and it just makes you delay pushing the effort button <laughs> a little bit longer because you know you have somewhere to go mm -hmm. and you feel a little bit more accountable and for parents like you can go somewhere and people get it and you can just say what you feel and no one's gonna judge you or think you're weird or extreme or a bad parent or something. You can just be around people who get you and your struggle and then no one else is there. It's very safe. So I think community for everybody, regardless of what it is, is really important. Yeah, it's very validating to hear somebody else talk about their life and it sounds just like yours. Yeah, exactly. And the the issue, I think in the beginning, Facebook groups were an excellent way to get support. And I think that's where a lot of us start. But for some Facebook groups, especially the ones that get big, mm -hmm. what happens is people come in there looking to promote their stuff or looking to get members to go to their thing. Mm -hmm. So it kind of disrupts that that like supportive, safe vibe. And then you have people in there that have like a different motivation. And when you have like a small private community that's safe and you can like protect the people and make sure like no one is coming in to do anything that they shouldn't, it just makes it, it makes everybody able to talk more and share and like really be vulnerable. And they just feel like it's okay. Mm-hmm. So do you have men and women in the group? Yep. Everybody is invited. I have probably like 70% of my audience is women. Mm -hmm. And I know I could have made a women's only group, but I feel like the dudes don't really have that many places to go. There are a lot of groups that are just for women or just for moms, which are fantastic and it's really needed. But I didn't see a lot of groups that are for everybody. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was important to me to have a spot for them as well. Yeah. I think the guys are often overlooked. So, I mean, I felt that way about supporting parents too. Like the fathers are overlooked. Yeah. That's a great idea. And do some of your members belong to other groups? Is it like a supplement? Does it work well with other resources? Yep. We have people that are also in the luckiest club. So that's another way to have meetings. We have people that are in AA and they have a sponsor. We have people that go to therapy. So I think it's good to have multiple different things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So then each thing kind of has its own purpose for you. And then you have, if you're having trouble, you have a lot of options. You don't just have one option. Yeah, that's a great idea. And then what kind of feedback do you get from the group members about their experience? Like what do they get out of it or find most helpful? Yeah, I've had a lot of people say this is the first time I've ever been to a meeting wow. or this is the first time I've ever 
turn my camera on or this is the first time I've ever spoken in a meeting. I had someone make a post recently and say that they found a community and meetings and it's like the most supportive kind group of people they've ever found and like they can't even believe it and I had someone else they really just feel like thankful for the amount of support that they get from each other like they come in and they maybe have expectations that it's going to be similar to other groups they've been in in the past and then we all like rush in on them and it's like we clap for people with their days and support everybody on their posts and I think they just feel like like relieved, like this is okay for me to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially like, I mean, going to 12 step meetings can be really intimidating. And the other part of that is a lot of treatment centers are 12 step focused. And then parents start thinking that that's like the only pathway to recovery. If their kid doesn't go to a 12 step meeting, then they're not going to be able to stay in recovery. And I think that all paths to recovery are important because everybody's different. It's not one size fits all. So I think that you had a different pathway to your recovery. Like, what are your thoughts about that? I think a lot of us are scared to even try AA because a few reasons. I think there's a lot of judgments that we make that are incorrect about AA. And because there are some people within AA that act like it's the only way, or if you don't go to AA, your sobriety is at risk. Like, I think also the stuff that's coming from some of the members of AA is off putting and makes us not want to go. There's a lot of, you'll see it on Facebook, there's a lot of AA is the only way people Mm -hmm. that are being preachy. So, I think that creates this judgment from a lot of us that we don't even want to try it. So then if we write it off, then what else can we do for support? So now all of a sudden you're trying to do it by yourself. So I think we are very lucky that now there are so many different methods to get support instead of going to AA and going in person and feeling afraid or just trying to do it on your own. Yeah. Yeah, when my daughter first got out of treatment and she, part of her living in her sober living, she had to go to meetings, but she was on Suboxone and they didn't support that. So that was one of the reasons that she went off life-saving medication because nobody would sponsor her if she wasn't on it. So the thing that I struggle with about 12-step meetings is there's a lot of stigma And the science isn't considered like the science of the importance of medication assisted treatment, like especially with all the overdose deaths that we're dealing with. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, I've heard from other people that they get stuck where their sponsor tells them that they can't move forward unless they use the word alcoholic and they admit it and take it on. And I think you can admit you have a problem and you have to start stop forever without using that label for yourself. And there's judgment about antidepressants or non-alcoholic drinks. And I think it makes it very challenging for some people who who do need antidepressants or or do like non-alcoholic drinks when they socialize. And 
it kind of alienates the AA community a little bit too, because I think the 12 steps are excellent and they know what they're talking about. Like all of the support in there is wonderful, but I think it's very strict and that makes new people not want to go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the labeling either. Like in treatment, my daughter started referring to herself as an addict and I think it's so limiting. Like it's just one part of a person. I don't think it's a way to define yourself. So that part of it, I can see how that would be really hard and make somebody not want to go. And I don't want to even reinforce that by like, I had this struggle of, I don't really know where to tell you to go for support, but, and I don't want to really push you towards 12-step meetings because I know what you're going to experience there. So I love that you're doing this to just offer another way to people who don't want to have to label themselves. Yeah, I think the label is hard. And that was one of the main reasons I wouldn't even try AA was because I didn't want people to call me an alcoholic. And that was one of the reasons that I held on to drinking for so long too, because I was afraid everyone would call me an alcoholic, which meant all of these bad things. So because of that, I felt I could not go to AA. Mm. Yeah. And there's, I've been like, studying person first language and how important it is. I'm trying to change the things that I say and be really intentional. And like, I go back and I look on my website and I'm like, oh gosh, I like searching words and just trying to change them a little bit at a time. But one word I did use was alcoholic. I wouldn't use the word addict, but I would use the word alcoholic. And then I started thinking like, it's the same just because it doesn't mean something to me right? Because I don't feel judgmental about it doesn't mean that the perception out there that I create when I use that word doesn't cause harm. Yeah, my issue with it was, like you said, it felt defining. It's a noun. It's like, that's the only characteristic about me that matters is that I have a problem with alcohol where person first language, like person with alcohol use disorder, for example, I'm still a person, like there's still other things about me. This is just one aspect. And I felt like the label alcoholic is just, it's so defining. And even though I do sober stuff full time and it's like all I talk about and and do, (laughs) there are still other things to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, the way you're doing it and what you're creating is so different than the stigma that goes with that word. And the life that you're creating is so much bigger and brighter, even though it does revolve around recovery. Then when I think of that word, it is, it's just so limiting. Yeah. And I just thought it meant so many bad things about me. I thought like alcoholic basically means weak will loser with no self-control. So if I accept that word, then I'm accepting all of those other things. And even though the powerless over alcohol thing. Like, I believe that that's accurate. And like what the steps say, it's all accurate. I just don't like that word. People say that about me all the time, like people who aren't aware. And it is what it is now. But in the beginning, it used to really bother me. Like when I would go on a show and they'd introduce me and I'd be listening to a bag and they'd be like, oh yeah, Jill recovering from alcoholism. And I'd just be like, (laughs) ouch. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's important like to hear how it feels to you to hear that 
and will help parents help us to think about the words we say when we're talking to our kids, when we're talking about them to other people, and when even when we're thinking about them, because all of that language has an impact on our relationship with them. Yeah. And I think the best thing to do is just ask because some people really like that word and they really identify with either alcoholic or addict and it helps them in their sobriety. And there are other people that like really get offended by it and there are people in the middle. So I think just asking like, what do you want to refer to your drinking as or your former drug use as like, what would you like me to say in my head even when I think about it? And then they'll tell you. And, and I think that would be really helpful for parents to have just the idea of what, what your kid is comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Cause if my that. husband went out with his friends or he was at a work thing and he was like, yeah, my wife's an alcoholic. Oh my gosh. That would be heartbreaking. That would be so heartbreaking if he described me that way to colleagues or friends or something. Yeah, because the first image that comes to mind is not somebody living this vibrant, purposeful, creative life. Like you just created a business out of nothing, right? Like, and that's not the first thing that comes to mind if he was to introduce you that way. Exactly. Yeah, it's the stigma that comes to mind like, oh, your wife is an alcoholic, like, oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah. And where it's like, oh, my wife is in recovery. She doesn't drink like that. It just has such a more positive tone to it. Mm-hmm. And I think alcoholic is just a word. It is what it is, but it's the meaning that the society has brought to the word, which is why we don't like it. Yeah. And then a lot of people have told me that their perception of substance use in general has changed just by me talking about my daughter, my relationship with her. And so we can like the words we use are really powerful and have a really big impact. So if we all were really a little bit more careful about that, I think it would make a big difference in the stigma overall in the world. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So what about like the importance of family members getting education about addiction and understanding. Do you have any, like, is that something that comes up in your groups or when you're talking to other people, like the importance of that or how it helps? Oh, we talk about family and friends all the time. (laughs) Give me all the gossip. (laughs) We talk about like, how can I tell them that I don't want to drink anymore? How can I ask them for support? How can I ask them to stop offering me alcohol? A lot of family members and close friends, their first response is, you weren't that bad. You don't have to stop. Like, you're not that bad. What are you talking about? And they try to talk us out of something that we want to do, or they'll not understand and pressure us or stop inviting us to things. So we talk about other people all the time. I think the best thing for families and friends to do would be to understand, like, even if you don't think it's that bad, you don't know what this person's doing 100% of the time. You see them for one portion of their life. You don't see the whole rest of it. Mm -hmm. And I think for 
family and friends who have seen like really awful things and are like, thank goodness you stopped. I think understanding why it's not a choice or that it's not that they don't love you enough or or they're selfish and they don't care. I think understanding that can help you just feel better about the situation. Feeling like someone doesn't love you enough is an awful way to feel. And I think understanding more like what's going on in our heads with substances can be helpful for people to just move forward and and be more accepting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you talk about that a lot, at least in your earlier episodes about like what was going on internally. That was your problem. Like externally, your life looked fine. Most people wouldn't have known. But what was happening in your mind and how you felt every day was really what you wanted to change. Yeah, exactly. And we get good at hiding it and protecting it because we don't want anyone to take it away from us. It's the most important thing like to our brains that are all like crazy and weird while we're doing, while we're drinking or using substances. So because of that, we get really good at appearing like everything's great and we can still go about our day and do our job and exercise and go on hikes and and do all these things with like disgusting hangovers or withdrawal symptoms. But we appear like we're fine. And that's just because we're being protective. We don't want people to know. We don't want people to judge us, those kinds of things. So even if someone looks completely normal to you, they might have a very serious internal struggle going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like how you pointed out it doesn't mean that they don't love you. That because when we take it, somebody else's substance use, no matter what it is, when if we take that personally, it makes everything so much more painful. It makes it harder to communicate. And I think a lot of people think that it's selfish or mean or about somebody else. But I think it's really important what you pointed out that it's about what the person who's using the substance is going through. Yeah. And we're not like regular people that get drunk or high sometimes when we're not drinking or using we're in like a constant fog Mm. we can't think clearly our memory is all weird I truly believed like my drinking was not impacting anyone even though my husband was with me every single day I really didn't think it had an impact on him at all And once I stopped drinking and like some time passed and all the fog cleared and my brain started healing, I realized like, whoa. So it's not just like that we're ourselves and then we drink or use and then we go back to ourselves. We're in a constant fog where we can't think clearly and we can't understand the world around us like we normally would either. Yeah, that's another great point because... (laughs) A lot of times, one of the stigmas is like not helping people too much. And I really believe in helping people, especially if they want to seek treatment or anything. How like when you're in that fog, when you're really struggling, it would be overwhelming. It's overwhelming to me when I was like researching, looking for treatment centers for my daughter. Like I can't even imagine her being able to do that. So if I can do the research, 
and have a couple of places ready for her to choose from, I think that it's really important to do that. Like, because there's no other thing in life that somebody could go through that we wouldn't think it was okay to help. Yeah. And I think that's an excellent point to collect resources. If someone wants your help, the best thing that you can do to make it easier for them is like, oh, I did this research. Here are some podcasts, here are some books, here are some meetings or communities or treatment centers, or let's go make an appointment with your doctor. Like being a a person that will at least help them find out what to do so it's not too overwhelming. I think that's the difference between them struggling and saying screw it and going back to what they were doing before and actually trying some of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Like it when my daughter was ready, we had the the place was picked out. I was on a plane. I was there within like five hours and flew from Florida to Oklahoma. And then the next night I was driving her from Oklahoma City to Houston. Like that was not the time to be doing hours and hours of research. When somebody's ready, you need to be ready too. Yeah, because it happens often without warning. Yeah. Like, so we'll just be going about our business and then something happens and we're like shocked out of denial and we're ready to do something about it. And we accept that, like, okay, we can't change the situation. We can't make it better. So we have to stop. And you're right. That's a good point I didn't consider. Like have not waiting until that moment to be like, okay, well, let me go on Google. And that can create more stress and overwhelm yeah. too. Absolutely. And so many parents say to me, like, my son or daughter is totally against going to treatment. They say it doesn't work and all. And I'm like, that can change like that. Like they can be saying that one minute and the next minute telling you that they're ready to go. Like those things really aren't an indication of how close somebody is. You'd think it would be, but it's really not an indication of how close somebody is to being ready or not. Yeah, and there's really no, there's no in-between. It's yeah. either like, I don't need that. That's not going to work for me. And then like, bam, like, let's go. Can we go right now? <laughs> yes, that's exactly how my daughter was. It's so funny. <laughs> so I love that you also brought up that when you're talking in a meeting, and talking about families, how hard it is to ask to let people know that you want to stop, how I guess that's really feels really vulnerable. Yeah. And people are scared too if they have stopped multiple times. Mm. They're scared that they shouldn't tell anyone until they can make sure like it's really going to stick. And they're scared of being shamed or not getting support. So I think that's something to be mindful of too. Most people don't stop the first time. Yeah, that is such a great point that it's probably harder each time. And the fear of like, there's already the internal shame. And then there's the fear of not being believed or supported. So I think that that's such a great point. How hard it gets, it's harder each time that it doesn't work. There is frustrated. However, the person that it's not working for is as frustrated as the person that loves them and wants it to work too. Yeah, exactly. And and we don't want to let anybody down or disappoint anyone. Like we're already disappointing ourselves nonstop. We don't want to disappoint the people that we care about the most too. 
So it's hard to decide, like, should I tell them right away? Should I wait? Should I try to do it secretly? Like, so I think just being mindful that there's a lot of shame there and making sure that people know that they can come to you when they need help, because being able to tell someone is so important and like say those words out loud and know that you have a safe space to go or a safe person to talk to or just someone that that kind of knows what you're going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely being the safe person for them to come to, knowing that they can depend on you to support them and not judge them. And I love what you brought up about not wanting to disappoint either because in the podcast episode that Helena was on, she talked about that. Like one of the things that pushed her forward was hearing just always the fear and disappointment in my voice and my mom's voice every time we talked to her, like she hated disappointing us. Yeah, we don't want you guys to think badly of us or or like not love us anymore and and all this stuff. And we already think so horribly about ourselves. Like by the end of addiction, when someone is starting to get help and trying to come out of it, like self-esteem and self-worth is so low at that point. So we don't want to risk losing people that we care about and having them think horrible things about us too and just confirming what we believe deep down Mm -hmm. yeah that's so true so what do you think like if somebody's listening to this and they're like okay i'm interested in joining that group but they're on the fence or scared or they don't understand like what would you want that person to know well, first of all, you can reach out to me and ask me whatever questions you have about it. But I think the most important thing about my group is it's small. And that's what I've heard from people that have joined is they were in other groups that some groups get really big, like there's over 100 people on the call. And you can't really talk or you feel shy about turning your camera on. And when you come to my group, it's like, 10 people on a call, like our calls are very small and they're always going to be that way. And I think that's where the comfort comes from of turning your camera on and talking. So I think just knowing that like, it's a small, nice community that you can fit right into easily and will be excited to welcome you and cheer whatever days you have on. Even if you have zero days, we'll still cheer for you. (laughs) Sure that you're even like considering it. Yeah, that you came to your first meeting and you're like just taking a step. It doesn't matter how many times you have to take that first step, just being willing to do it and being open to considering not drinking is huge. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be like a harm reduction, researching it, setting up the support system ahead of time. I think that that was a really good point. Well, thanks for coming on to talk about this. And I'm going to put all the links to Jill's website to sign up for the group and where you can follow her on social media. It'll all be in the show notes. So thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Hey, if you were listening to this episode thinking you would like support for yourself, and coaching that will give you the tools you need to feel more confident about helping your child, use the link in the show notes to sign up for a sample coaching call with me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about my work, go to heatherrosscoaching.com. If you want to help other parents who are struggling with a child's addiction, you can do it two different ways. First, you can share the podcast with them directly, or you can share it on your social media. Second, you can leave a review. Talk to you next week.